This is the Monday, February 12, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. For Black History Month, our time machine piles readers four to eight years old into their car seats and takes them on a road trip to meet a hero who overcame segregation and many other obstacles to pursue his artistic dream. And that's after being a star football player, thanks to his six foot three inch size and athletic ability. Returning to the show is Sandra Neal Wallace. Sandra last joined us with her husband and co-writer, Rich Wallace, to discuss their books, Bound by Ice, A True North Pole Survival Story, and Blood Brother, Jonathan Daniels and His Sacrifice for Civil Rights. You can hear those conversations in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening. Sandra's latest book is titled Between the Lines, How Ernie Barnes Went from the Football Field to the Art Gallery. In it, young readers will find the story of a pro football player brought to life by Sandra's prose and Brian Collier's watercolors. Brian Collier is an award-winning illustrator whose art won first place in a 1985 congressional competition and later earned him a scholarship to New York City's Pratt Institute. While studying in Gotham, Brian volunteered at the Harlem Horizon Studio and Harlem Hospital Center with a program that provides working space and materials for self-taught artists in the community. He held the post of program director for 12 years and still donates his time, driven by a passion to be a positive role model for kids. You can find him online at briancollier.com. That's Brian with a Y, C-O-L-L-I-E-R. You've seen Sandra Neal Wallace's work as a news anchor and ESPN sportscaster, and you'll recall that she was the first woman to host an NHL show on network TV. You can find her at sandranealwallace.com, on Twitter at Sandra N. Wallace, and facebook.com slash Sandra Neal Wallace. Okay, now that we've hauled on our pads and unpacked our paintbrushes, let's join Sandra Neal Wallace and meet Ernie Barnes between the lines. I'm joined via Skype by Sandra Neal Wallace, author of Between the Lines, how Ernie Barnes went from the football field to the art gallery. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show. 
Oh, it's great to be here, Dean. And I always love your questions and your thoughtful research on our books. Well, just picking up your books is enough to make all those questions and make all those thoughts. And especially here in Between the Lines, you think about putting the book in the hands of a young person. So I thank you for that because I love having your books. I love picking them up, especially since you cast such a wide net with your projects. Talk about not being a one-trick pony or a couple of them. These things are all over the journeys that you take us on as readers. So that's the question that I've been dying to ask. How How did Ernie Barnes inspire you to tell his story in between the lines and why do it as an illustrated book? That's another new venue for you as far as books we've talked about here. Well, you know, Dean, I guess if you look at the subject matter of my last six books, they may seem disparate at first glance, but really what I try to do and what draws me are characters that break barriers and change the world in the process. And that's exactly what I found when I discovered the Ernie Barnes story. I first found out about Ernie Barnes while I was interviewing athletes as a reporter with ESPN. And Dean, I kept seeing these incredible paintings in their homes of football scenes and basketball scenes and of musicians and dancers and school marching bands. And they all had this incredible distinct style. And then I saw this painting from the NFL that really made my heartbeat quicken. It's called The Bench. And I was so moved by that painting and its bold brushstrokes that appear to bounce off a canvas to a rhythm and a sense of purpose that really carries over into all of Ernie's paintings. And when I heard that he had been a professional football player, I just knew that I had to tell his story. I had to find out how he navigated two very different worlds. Because, you know, in society, we're conditioned to pick one thing you know, to checkmark that box, Dean, that you're either Mm -hmm. creative, smart, or athletic. And I always felt that why can't we be all of those things? And Ernie felt the same way. He didn't believe in those boxes or stereotypes. He chose his own destiny. And that's what really drew me to the story. And as for telling the story in a picture book, you know, his paintings and his life just kept swirling in my mind. And I saw his life in pictures. And I really thought that kids would be drawn to his story. As you're speaking about him having those multiple careers, I'm thinking of the pro athletes you've been around and that you've worked with and how nice that really is to find somebody, whether it's an athlete or whether it's somebody like myself. I know when I first went to work in news, people said, wait a minute, you you had a whole career with animals. That's what your your degree and expertise was. People would be crowding around, usually to ask things like why their dog was rubbing their butt on the carpet, but (laughs) it was still a nice time. So I would talk to them about it. I'm thinking of some pro athletes or some people who do just have that one thing. Yarmir Yager, who looks like he's retiring from the NHL right now at 45, the incredible age of 45, he just does hockey. No family, no nothing. And that is what helps make him a great player. But people do have these other dreams. If you talk to anybody, I'm sure even if you spoke to him, they would say, I want to do something else. And sometimes it's just they do get caught up in their career. They never have the opportunity to write a great book or to take up painting. But for Ernie Barnes, he's an inspiration for children because it wasn't limitations that he placed on himself necessarily. It was just the doors that were closed to him. You explain his story in between the lines. There's so many topics that he faced that kids today, kids in any era can relate to. Bullying, having their dreams, being told they can't have their dreams, perseverance, dedication, shyness, and the roadblocks that we all get thrown up in our lives, but especially children. Any random adult can throw up a roadblock in front of you if you're a kid, it seems, when you're young. You you just want to be 
older, able to do your own thing. Ernie Barnes is born on July 15th, which is Rembrandt's birthday, same date as Rembrandt, in 1938. His world is one of Jim Crow laws and of many closed doors, many water fountains, all these things that we're familiar with now. And that's his big obstacle is racism and doors being slammed in his face. So what reactions are you getting from kids as they begin to read the book and reflect on their struggles and exactly what you just talked about, that you don't need to pick the one thing. You can do multiple things. You can be a circus clown on the side if you want and see where it takes you. What are young readers saying to you? That must be such a wonderful experience for you. It is. You know, the message of resilience and overcoming obstacles is is timeless. And it's been resonating in this book um, already with librarians and parents and young readers. Uh, but what really makes Ernie different is that he was multi-talented and that he followed his heart. And that's what's really resonating with kids. They love reading that Ernie played football and he painted and how he never stopped painting while he was playing football. <laughs> you know, they love how he practiced talking about his dream to be an artist with people he met in the summers when he went door to door as a brush salesman, because, you know, in the 1960s, most pro football players didn't earn large salaries and they had to have summer jobs. They're just so amazed that he kept going. And of course, they love Ernie's paintings because they just, you know, imbibe daily life. You know, they elevate everyday life. And a lot of them are depictions of children playing double dutch and people in motion and they they just respond to that because they're just kinetic whirlwinds also it's great that he had people in his life who also were a positive influence that putting myself in the shoes of a young person myself saying well stop doing that why are you doing that kids are being told that constantly about you know, why why are you drawing on the sideline when you should be paying attention to the game or something like that which as an adult you see that makes complete and total sense but there's a fine line for you to walk if you're somebody on our side of the cover so to speak now reading the book to a child or for you writing it where you tell them it's okay to pursue that dream in the right place at the right time but use the energy in the right way don't just do what i think is so easy for adults and that comes across in between the lines, give that flip answer and just say, don't do that. You know, that's my answer to it. It's just to tell you no, tell you to stop. That's right. You know, Ernie had two great role models in his life, his mother, Fannie Mae Barnes, and his dad. And they had different roles in his life. His mother encouraged him, you know, by the age of five, he knew and identified that, that he was an artist. She was a housekeeper for a wealthy white lawyer, and she made sure that Ernie came to that house and saw the incredible paintings in the library. She bought him art books. And then there was his dad that supported him, but always said, Ernie, how are you going to make a living as an artist? And Ernie didn't have a role model, anybody that he knew in his world who had made a living as an artist. So that really prompted him to come up with a game plan, like, you're right, how am I going to be an artist? And that was always in the back of his mind, swirling and churling and coming up with a game plan to be an artist. And isn't that a great way to go about it, to say, how are you going to make a living? Not you can't. I think so many times you, I read these stories and it'll be a parent figure or somebody in some position of authority who says, well, don't do that. You can't make life as an artist. You can't feed yourself doing that. Even if it was about football, people will say, you can't be an athlete. Look how many guys wash out. And yet by posing it as a question, he gets him thinking about it, but he's on his side. I love that when I'm reading it about Ernie Barnes's father, because he needs somebody there 
who's going to be on his side, who understands that this isn't just a crazy dream. This isn't a fantasy. It's something he has the talent, but also the drive. And if you are somebody that's into some kind of art, you can't stop doing it. That was the thing with him. He wanted to paint and the football was really a way to get there. You write in between the lines. In fact, Ernest didn't want to play baseball or football. His hands were drawing hands. But that's the talent that gets him in the door. That's the one that opens first. But he holds on to that dream. He almost keeps it in his locker. I guess literally in some ways keeps it in his locker and and wants to get to it. Yeah, I mean, when he created that incredible painting, The Bench, that really was a marker for him to say, okay, I am an artist. I can produce something great. And he carried that painting with him to training camp to remind him. And he kept it underneath his cot. So he never gave up on his dream to be an artist, you know, even while he was playing football. And I love that he kept a notepad and a pencil in his football socks. So he would sketch players while he stood on the sidelines. And even when he broke his hand, he started drawing players reaching higher and stretching further because he had to find a new way to paint, you know, with his wrist in a cast. And whenever his coach saw him sketching on the sidelines, he was just furious at Ernie. He would always say, Ernie, you'd be great if only you would get that art out of your head. And he would fine (laughs) Ernie $50, which was a huge amount, you know, in 1960. But Ernie kept drawing. And what happened was that Ernie created this new artistic style with those elongated brush strokes. It became known as the neo-mannerist movement. And that new style became the inspiration for a generation of artists and illustrators. So it's just an incredible mother of invention kind of thing that also defined his style as an artist. Nothing would stop him, even breaking his hand there with the Colts. He breaks his hand and he just keeps going. You would think that that would stop him. It stops many people. And that's another thing. Kids are still, even today, where we have the phrase helicopter parents, they're still getting injured. People are still getting stopped. And to have a drive that tells you, wow, maybe something good can come out of this. I think it's something we lost and you get it back here in between the lines with Ernie Barnes. He's never going to let anything stop him. And he meets so many people who would stop him through oftentimes just innocence. Nobody seems to be really just slamming it down. It's just they don't get him. And I, I think that's probably something in your vast research. I usually ask people, how did you whittle down all of that vast research into a book for young people? Because I think it's a misconception that, oh, well, kids' books are easy. You just slap it together. But it's actually hard. It's an economy of words. So how did you go about that? So many stories, so many people in his life to explain Ernie Barnes's story here in a short version, relatively, for young people that they could comprehend. Right. Well, you know, I made a list of Ernie's allies and adversaries, and that was really one of the angles that I looked at. Of course, you know, knowing me with research, I was determined to really find every article and all the information I could that's ever been written about Ernie. And I did. I got a huge stack. And just what kept on reaching to the top was his determination and his refusal to never give up on his first dream was to be an artist. And that really struck me, you know, time and time again. And then when I was making that list of his support system, I was amazed that there were football players who really supported him. They called him Big Rembrandt. (laughs) And I think part of that reason was he would do so many sketches of them. I mean, who doesn't love to have a sketch of themselves, right? (laughs) So they were just transfixed about that. And, you know, I could really relate and see how kids could relate to Ernie and people telling them, you know, you made it to the pros. You're crazy. You're nuts. Just be happy with that. Don't 
think about trying to be an artist and the chances of being an artist. Kids are told that all the time. You know, again, we go back to that either or thing. And I knew that they could relate to the great things he did, like starting with painting in the mud stick painting and how muddy games were always important to Ernie. As a matter of fact, he he decided to give up football on a muddy game where he just saw the sunlight coming through the, the rain and how incredible the scene was. He actually saw it as gladiators in a coliseum. And he knew that he just had to keep painting football versus playing football. Just that visual scene of half the time when he was sketching that the wind would take up all the sketches <laughs> and they would just be littering the, the stadium and the gridiron. And, and kids just love that. They read that page over and over because it's just so visual. You can imagine that. And who doesn't ever have their homework or something that they're really proud of get either ruined by a dog or a little brother or the rain? So there were so many things that kept telling me that this would be a great picture book. And it's the action of it, too, when you do that. It shows how dedicated to the art he is because even though he knows it's going to be washed away, he can't pick up a muddy puddle and put it in his pocket. He just has to do it. He just has to create. That's something he's always doing. And he's able to go through his whole playing career and never give it up. And I think that would be so easy to do. It's so easy to tell people in any endeavor, well, why aren't you happy with what you have? I would kill to have what you have. This is such a great career. Don't throw it away. But if you're not fulfilled, and if you're a young person looking for what their future is going to be, it's this big, scary, empty canvas, so to speak. You're trying to find out what it should be and that idea of being happy. And yes, providing for yourself, as Ernie Barnes' father tells him, that's important. It's important to be able to eat and <laughs> have those kind of things, a roof over your head. But this age here, 48 years old, that's the time to dream. And he handles it so well that he holds on to them, even in the face of things like a tour guide in an art museum. He asks about the paintings and he doesn't see any there that are from his point of view. And she says, well, your people don't express themselves that way. And I was so glad you included that in between the lines because I looked at that woman and I thought that was just such an easy answer. She didn't know the answer, I'm sure. That's such a throwaway line for her in her life. And here it ends up in a book of history. And it would have been so easy to crush a child's talent, a very talented child, to crush his dreams by just that throwaway, easy answer there. Instead of saying, I don't know, or let me look it up for you and come back tomorrow. And we all have a million moments like that in our lives. And I thought, as adults are reading this book to a child, what do you think we can learn from how to handle a situation like that where a child comes to us with a question that we don't have the answer to and we feel like we should, that we you feel insecure? You maybe feel like a child yourself being tested. How can you handle those moments so hopefully we don't just give the easy answer, but we really try to understand our power as adults and not crush a dream? Well, that tour guide's ignorant reaction really jolts the reader and Ernie, doesn't it? But what's life-changing is how Ernie reacts to that untruth. And that's what I wanted to show readers. Ernie knows that it's wrong, and yet he still has to process those words. And I, and I think illustrator Brian Collier paints one of the most poignant scenes in the book by showing the range of emotions that Ernie's experiencing you know, after he hears that shocking untruth. And then Ernie uses that museum moment, and he transforms it into a major turning point in his life. It actually motivates him to determine his focus as an artist. He decides to paint the beauty of the daily life in his neighborhood. 
And that's not only a breakthrough for him as an artist, but for the world of American art. So it's that sense of empowerment in the face of adversity, how you can turn something around that I really wanted kids to take away from that scene. Such a great lesson, because I think we all do that. We have somebody that's in an authority or a person that tells us this just doesn't exist or this just doesn't happen. And we internalize it and accept it. And really, it's an easy thing to do because you want the answer. Okay, he could have gone on and lived his life and not even worried about it. And yet instead, he chooses to say, I'm not accepting that. I'm sure he's intimidated. He's just a young person. You go to a museum, you're you're really overawed. As I recall, the times we used to go to the ones in the city when I was the age that Ernie Barnes is in that scene. And yet he decides he's going to say, you know, that's not the case. That can't be the case. And even if it's not, I'm going to be the pioneer. What an amazing thing to take on yourself when you're so young. Yeah, I mean, he knew that she was wrong, and yet he didn't have concrete role models at that particular time around his neighborhood. He had known about African-American artists, but they weren't part of his everyday world. So what could he do about that? And I just love, again, how through adversity, it would make him make him think, and he was a quiet guy. He wasn't a man of many words. And then he would make his statement in these incredible paintings that changed the American art scene. So how brilliant is that? You know, if you don't have a role model, become your own role model. (laughs) Why choose to do an illustrated book? It sounds like Ernie Barnes's life could have filled a full biography. What drew you to want to tell the story to kids? Well, he did write an amazing autobiography that I was able to get so many quotes and insight into who Ernie was. But the reason why I wanted it to be a picture book and an illustrated biography, it it was his paintings. And especially so many of his paintings are of young people in motion, you know, striving for their dreams and living in the moment, just embracing life and the world. So it was it was important for me and it was a natural I think, step. And it was just obvious that from day one, when I was reading this, that it was just so visual. I never considered it to be an older biography because I wanted to have so many images in this book. And when I worked with my editor and right away, she had an incredible illustrator in mind. I started to get really excited that Brian Collier was going to be on this project. It's really the perfect blend between your words and Brian Collier's images, because I said when we were speaking before we started recording that I was looking at the cover as you and I spoke, and Ernie Barnes' face on the cover of the book kept drawing me. The light was exactly like the light in the room that I'm in now, coming off of his face, and it was almost as if he was listening to me talking to you, which is a big compliment to the art here, Brian Collier, that it's as if he is going to speak to you, Ernie Barnes. And he has such a soft, pleasant, dignified expression that if you're a kid, that's somebody that you want to know. That's somebody if you're lost or if you want a role model or if you have a question to ask you're a little shy about, this is a man that you would go to. And then you've got the, he's got the football behind him on one side and the Sugar Shack painting that we'll speak about a little later on the other. It's really beautifully rendered, and it's something that's aimed at a child for one thing. It also invokes his art, the art of the artist that you're writing about, Ernie Barnes. Then at the top, you have this big between the lines and the even the way the font is done on that that invokes how you would draw football plays. But Between the Lines struck me as a great title. I love to linger over the title and the first line of a book. So 
Before we get a little more into the illustrator, Brian Collier's part of the book, tell me how you chose that title. It has multiple meanings, and I just really loved it. I love it standing boldly there at the top. I wish I could take credit for the title of the book, <laughs> Dean, but really it's my editor, Paula Wiseman of Simon & Schuster, who came up with that title. I thought of Ernie's playbook, but as soon as she said between the lines, I knew it was brilliant because it, it references Ernie's life on the gridiron and as an artist. In football, he was called L1 as an offensive lineman. And as an artist, he stretched lines and painted movement. So he navigated freely between those two worlds until the day he realized that he really couldn't play another game and he had to paint. So I agree. I think it's a perfect title. Yeah, I love it. And I love even the font. There's so much loving things put into this book. You could tell that you really put together a perfect team to make a pun, that everybody cared so much about it. As an adult, you're the one that's going to be reading it to those children four to eight. So you want to keep the adults interested, too. You want to visually please them. You want them to pick up the book and feel some heft. I like even the feel of the dust jacket of the book has some texture to it. There's just so much love put into the book from everybody involved. It's interesting, Dean, that the cover, you talked about that tactile experience. It's really supposed to feel like a grain of wood. As you know, reading the story, that picket fence in Ernie's life around his childhood home has so much meaning for the book. We start off the book with a freshly painted white picket fence when Ernie's a boy of about five years old and how he plays in the mud around the fence. Then, of course, the book Towards the end, the the fence is withered. He goes back to visit his dad, who is dying. And then Ernie puts his paintings against the fence, and he sees how amazingly they go together, the old and the new, and the weatheredness of the fence, the harshness of life, and the resilience of life. And so when the illustrators and our art director said, let's have kids and young readers and adults feel that wooden fence on the cover of the book, I got really excited, and kids really notice that as soon as they hold the book. You can see the little hands being rubbed over this cover, and I'm so glad that you mentioned it because while we're talking, I kept having this impulse to pick up the book and flip to that page. People can can hear that a little bit. <laughs> I would say if you're going to listen to this interview and you don't have the book yet, listen to it again when you're picking up the book and flip through it to some of these things we're referencing because even though I've gone over it a bunch of times with eye towards doing the interview as you're talking about those pictures, I just want to pick it up again and flip to the back and flip through and find that scene where he's sitting there on the bench and he has all of these paintings and these moments like with the fence in his life. So it really is interactive. I imagine this is getting all the praise that it deserves for a reason. This is definitely because people pick it up and are just blown away by it. Oh, thank you. You know, we've been really lucky with four-starred reviews and and national attention. And really, that excites me because it just means that a whole new generation of Americans will will learn about the story and the genius of, of Ernie Barnes and that he gets the, the credit that I feel he really deserves. In the sports world, he's considered one of the greatest artists of all time in the 1970s. The paintings that he did showing the beauty of everyday life really sparked a cultural revolution. And then we're talking about Sugar Shack is considered one of the 50 greatest American paintings, but we don't hear about Ernie Barnes. He's as copied as Andy Warhol, and yet kids don't learn about this American original. So we really felt that it was time that they did. 
another thing there that you know from working in news is people also, when they cover you, they want to have one thing. And if you're already covered as the football player, unless it's the occasional human interest story, people aren't going to focus on you also as an artist. And that's the legacy. That's what endures his, his, his paintings, his amazing images that even when you were describing the sugar shack in your prose, I said, wait, I've seen that image. I've seen it on Good Times at the end of when I was watching when I was growing up and they have the credits at the end run over it. And I think they cast it as one of J.J. Walker's paintings in the show. He paints many things along those lines. Also in a Marvin Gaye album cover, right? So this is something where just your description of it, you think, wait, I remember 1976, I want you, or you just remember seeing it, even if you don't know where. And you talk about that here a little in between the lines as well, that we've seen these paintings and they stick with you because they are so unique and they invoke so much of real life. If you were a child growing up in the city and you remember things like Double Dutch, you remember hearing it, you were brought to all those moments here when you pick up between the lines and you see Brian Collier's illustrations. Yeah, you talk about the light too, which is really interesting because when you look at all of Ernie's paintings, you know, his subjects are just bathed in this beautiful yellow light. He's really glorifying their experiences and elevating their experiences, which is really incredible. And it's the same. People don't realize that, you know, the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, he was the official artist in those incredible posters. Take a look at those athletes stretching and soaring and where the light is coming from. It's just bathed in, in this beautiful light. And the illustrator, Brian Collier, made sure that if you look at his work, in every page and notice where the light is coming from and how it's shining on the subject and what we're focusing on is really incredible. My guest is Sandra Neal Wallace taking us behind the scenes of her book, Between the Lines, how Ernie Barnes went from the football field to the art gallery. You can visit her at sandranealwallace.com, at Sandra N. Wallace on Twitter, or facebook.com slash Sandra Neal Wallace. And you can find the artist behind the vivid illustrations at briancollier.com. Remember, that's Brian spelled with a Y. And I did that right away. I went and checked out some of his other work. So I hope people will want to do that as well. There's such a cool live art. The New York Times Book Review does this Facebook live art. And Brian was featured recently. And he recreated some of the art that he did in Between the Lines. And people from all over the world, Turkey, India, chimed in. And it's really great. It's about half an hour. And it's just mesmerizing uh, the watercolors and the collage that he does. So I would really recommend your listeners to take a look. And I'll link to that on the historyauthor.com page so people can just go to that page and find their way to that. I was really glad when you told me that because to see what happens here, how all of these images come to life, I think it's magic how an artist works. And here we can't see Ernie Barnes do it, but we can see Brian Collier do it and how he brings it to life and hear a little bit from him about what he thinks when he's doing it. How do you go about it? You have that blank sheet. You get to really see somebody work. What what an amazing time to be able to do that on Facebook and see it live. Yeah, Brian has always told me that when he thinks of a story or when he reads the text, 
images swirl in his mind. Whereas when I am reading about a story or a subject, words and phrases swirl in my mind. And I thought that was really cool because, you know, I've got all these words and different combinations that just keep coming up when I'm reading about someone like Ernie Barnes. And then it's up to me to figure out the perfect placement of where to put that within the story and how to make it work. And he does the exact same thing with art and with the images that are in his mind. Along those lines, Brian Collier states in the book, quote, I chose not to recreate this book in Ernie's style because it is so original and unique that it shines so proudly on its own. It speaks for itself. How did Brian Collier end up holding the paintbrush for this project? And what collaboration did you have in bringing Between the Lines to life? I know oftentimes illustrators and authors don't have a lot. The publishers want to keep them separate and have them do little bits of work. And then you one day get an envelope or maybe even get just the finished book and see the images that go with the prose you've written. What was your collaboration? How did you come together to capture this lightning in a bottle here, this great team that I mentioned earlier that produces between the lines? Well, we were connected from the beginning. I had a vast research binder that Brian was very appreciative of having. So that was great. And first of all, I'm still pinching myself to have my first picture book illustrated by a four-time Caldecott Honor winner and a nine-time Coretta Scott King winner. You know, people kept saying, Sandra, manage your expectations. There's no (laughs) way your first picture book is going to be illustrated by such a huge star in children's publishing. But it's, again, you know, believing in yourself and believing in in your dream. Really? There you go. Yeah. I mean, when my editor sent the the text off and the manuscript to Brian, I was told that he said, I'm in. This is a really, really important story. And what I didn't know at the time was that Brian was inspired to pursue his artistic dream because of Ernie Barnes, which is incredible. Brian told me that the seed for his own creativity was planted by his grandmother, who was a quilter, but that the reality that he could actually be an artist happened when he watched the sitcom Good Times. We were talking about that earlier in the 1970s. And of course, he saw the paintings of J.J. Evans, which were really painted by Ernie Barnes. And at that moment, Brian said that he knew that his dream to be an artist was attainable because he had a role model. So this project was so personal for him and close to his heart. And when I found out about that, um, that really got me excited. So what he decided to do, you know, Brian has his own distinct style. He works in watercolor and collage. So he decided, and I think this is brilliant, to keep Ernie's unique style within the frames of all the paintings that you see in the book on every page. And then the rest of the work is totally Brian's style. So Ernie's iconic neo-mannerist movement is in all the paintings contained within the frames. Is that brilliant? It is brilliant. And I love it. Being original, right? Even though he's inspired by him, he's not going to try to copy him. And I think today, I know when I'm reading news stories, watching TV or following elections, you know, everybody wants to be the new somebody else. It's such an easy shorthand, too, to write in stories. Well, this person's the next Winston Churchill. We need another Theodore Roosevelt, or we need somebody like Eisenhower that can go and make peace or whatever it is. We need another Reagan that's going to go to the Soviet Union is going to end the Cold War. Well, be the best person you can be is the message here. Let your talent carry you where it's going to be original. And I love that behind the scenes story that you say they told you manage your expectations because we not only tell other people things like that, but we tell ourselves. And can you imagine if you had said, well, I'm not going to reach out to him if nobody had bothered to try to get 
Brian Collier on board. And then you'd publish the book. I'm sure it would have still been excellent, but you'd heard from him and he said, this is great. I wish that I could have participated or something like that. You would have kicked yourself, I'm sure, and said, gosh, he he would have been really into it. And it would have been like letting Ernie Barnes down if it wasn't a book that was this good. It has to be just perfect. It has to be a great book because he's a great artist and a great man. So that's the kind of thing where keep pushing if you're a young person. Absolutely. And I just, I love that I dreamt big, Brian dreamt big, and Ernie Barnes dreamt big, and how we're all connected, and how, you know, Brian said, this is the first time I really did a book that was that personal to my own life. And you can really tell the emotions that come across in all his depictions of Ernie. And he actually told me that to get the different scene sets, what he did is he recruited some of his neighborhood friends. And he had them recreate the scenes that he actually painted to get some of that emotion, that emotional heat that he knew that Ernie was facing, particularly that scene in the museum where we were talking about what the tour guide had said. And you see all these different points of views, the head turns of Ernie Barnes in terms of the range of emotions that are going through his mind. So think about that when you're looking at all the artwork in the book. It reminds me that When you are writing a project or illustrating or whatever you do in your life, if you're somebody that does contract work, not the same thing every day, there are some projects that your heart is super in and that you really want to do. And there are others where you're just going to do it. You're going to capture it somewhat. You're still going to do a good job, but it's not your passion. Whereas you open between the lines and you can tell how much he cared. Brian Collier cares enough on that very first page to give you an image that has so many little details. And I love be it in writing or be it in art, when somebody will make the effort to put something in that maybe one out of every hundred people will notice. For instance, that very first image, when you open between the lines, it's a container of paintbrushes and you look closely and you see the container is actually a football helmet that's slightly cropped out of the frame. A very subtle detail that maybe if you are one of those adults reading the book and adults have to read a book again and again and again at bedtime, you won't notice that the first 20 times you read the book. But it's a little detail and And when you read it that 21st time, you'll say, oh, hey, wait a minute, there's a helmet there. That's really clever. It shows both sides of his life, of his personality, of his art, and also of his athletics. So I wanted to ask you, when you started getting those illustrations, what did you think? What was your reaction to that? When I first saw the color paintings, that was the first time I saw the artwork. I I cried. You know, they really exceeded my expectation. Brian had given me this lovely note that said that, you know, I had given him so many layers to work with and so much emotion that it was a joy to paint, you know, these expressions and the rich imagery, like you said, the helmets, the picket fence, the muddy shoes. He noticed the nuances and the complexities that I put within the book and the layers. And then I noticed how he mirrored those layers, like you had said, with all the different spreads, you know, how he superimposes Ernie's numbers for the different teams that he played. And like you said, catching just those little things about the mud and how the mud and the picket fences, that's a resonating theme throughout the book. And how he imbibed the energy and movement and the in the light. He was telling me about the light and how important the, the illumination of, of Ernie's paintings and how he painted and people with this wonderful yellow light and, and how you see that in all the spreads and the colors that he chose. And, you know, Brian, with his collages, he collects thousands of magazines and he tears different magazines up to create his artwork. He was telling me that, you know, when I see a hamburger 
in a magazine, I don't see a hamburger like everybody else. I see wallpaper. <laughs> so I was asking him what kind of food groups he was he was using for Between the Lines. And he said he didn't use food groups. But what he did is, is he found some really interesting carpets and different tapestries and mosaics that he used for background and scene sets and colors and for Ernie's bedroom and the different wallpapers. And you can imagine the labor that goes through tearing and gluing and painting to make those collages is just incredible. Caring so much about it is the key thing and the love that he has and the originality and really the courage that Brian Collier has to say, I'm going to create my own style. It would have been, I imagine, very easy to just say, well, I'm writing about a great artist in Ernie Barnes. Why don't I just copy his style a little bit? Why don't I just do the book in the way he would do it, the way he would paint about his life, I can kind of use his other photos or his other illustrations and paintings as my guide. But instead, he decided to have the courage to do it his own way and to illustrate it in a way that would tell the story as those of us outside are going to read it. He's not him. He's not trying to be him. The book is not as if it's one that's written and illustrated by Ernie Barnes. It's one that is a story you're telling. And I just thought that was really a great choice because you couldn't have all those personal moments like having people in the neighborhood come and reenact those things or thinking about the light. If you were thinking about what he would do, if you were trying to be an imitation of Ernie Barnes's work, it's really an original work. And then it gives us all this new great art and it shows us on every page how Ernie Barnes really did inspire this new art form. We're, we're looking at the fruit of his life and his talent, his perseverance. And one of those pieces of legacy is the bench, which it now hangs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I wanted you to mention the originality and how you hope that children are inspired, your young readers, to find their own voice, to not just copy somebody who's already done something, but really find your own voice, shut things out around you, and just focus on your own eyes, light, things like that. The Bench is a perfect example, Dean, of originality for Ernie Barnes. That that was such a visceral experience for him. When he painted The Bench, he had been drafted by the Baltimore Colts. He always wanted to play with Johnny Unitas and the greats on that Colts team. He had seen the championship game. 1959 Colts versus the New York Giants. And that image kept swirling in his mind. When he came home, he immediately grabbed a palette brush and started to paint that in oil. And within a few hours, he had had this masterpiece. And he knew that this was a piece of who he was. He knew that he had created something incredible. He didn't necessarily know that it was going to launch an art movement, but it meant so much to him that he carried that painting everywhere. And can you imagine you're not making a lot of money as a pro football player? You've got to have part-time jobs. You're injured. He was offered $25,000 for the bench in 1960, and he turned it down. That's how much that painting meant to him and his psyche as an artist because he didn't know anyone who made a living as an an artist in the 50s and 60s. And I love how he became his own artistic role model. And that happened after he had a conversation with his art teacher in college in terms of what do I paint? How do I become unique? And Mr. Wilson kept telling Ernie that art is all around you. Just look for the stories to paint. And that's what Brian Collier tells young burgeoning artists too. Art is all around you. You know, your voice is just the next breath away. Pay attention. Pay attention to what others don't. 
in daily life. And Ernie was like that. You know, he saw beauty and flowers growing through cracked sidewalks and kids playing double dutch. But, you know, in addition to making his subjects reach high and always be in emotion, Ernie focused on that light we kept talking about that you see in Sugar Shack, where the dancers are swaying to the rhythm of jazz tunes at a jazz club. So that painting became such an iconic expression of pure joy that Ernie knew that his signature was showing beauty, showing light, and that it was all around him in his daily life. And that became his signature. Sandra, adults are the ones with the purse strings to the Amazon accounts, and not to mention they're the ones that are reading the book repeatedly at bedtime to give their children some magical images to dream about. I'd like to close with your pick. Whoops. I'd like to close with your pitch to those adults. Why should they pick up between the lines for the young readers in their lives? Dean, I wrote the story of the life of Ernie Barnes because I really want kids to know that art is for everyone and artists come from everywhere. Artists are Frida Kahlo, who is a self-taught artist from Mexico. Artists are Andy Warhol, the son of a coal miner from Slovakia. And artists are Ernie Barnes, an NFL player from the segregated South who became one of the most influential painters in America. And what's so inspiring about Ernie is that he believed in himself. He dreamt big. He refused to believe that being an artist wasn't an option for him. And he was determined to find a way. So like Ernie, I believe that kids can take different paths to their dreams when they grow up. But if they believe in themselves and their dream and they have a game plan, they'll reach it. Well, Sandra Neal Wallace, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having a game plan here for this great story and executing it so well with (laughs) your team from Simon & Schuster and Brian Collier, the illustrator. This really is a wonderful book to spark a love of history in young people, but also a love of art. So I wish you the best of luck with Between the Lines. Every day, if people go and Google it, they'll find new praise for this very special book. I hope you'll pass on my compliments to everybody who helped make this book a reality. I sure will, Dean. And thank you for your great questions and for your poignant, in-depth review of this book. Well, thank you. It's easy to say great things about a great book. Thanks, Dean. Again, the book is Between the Lines, How Ernie Barnes Went from the Football Field to the Art Gallery. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase a copy for the young reader in your life at historyauthor.com and we hope you will click through there or even navigate using that Amazon banner right at the top of our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon you go to historyauthor.com we take it Amazon and amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make whether it's paintbrushes, books or paints themselves at no additional charge in your shopping cart. And by doing that, you help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Thanks to Sandra Neal Wallace for joining me as a three-peat guest with the inspiring story of a multi-talented American hero. Visit her at sandraneilwallace.com, at sandranwallace on Twitter, or facebook.com slash Wallace. And remember to check out the artists behind the illustrations at briancollier.com. And while you're surfing the web, why not let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean 
or facebook.com slash history author. Since we're talking about pictures, remember that we do have an Instagram page now. You can connect with that at the app by going to The History Author Show. That's it for this installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.